You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder in My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the sad and tragic case of a beloved mother who died at the hands of her son, a son who himself would be dead before he could face justice. It was the culmination of a sad and tragic story. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash T-M-I-M-F podcast. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash themurdermyfamily. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon may include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters, and thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please support any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. All of the cases I learn about for this show are tragic stories that ended in the loss of a loved one. In most cases, the family of a murder victim will be pushed forward by their quest for justice and the need for those responsible to be held accountable. But not for the family we're discussing in this episode, though. There will be no justice, no light at the end of the tunnel, just tragic loss of not one but two family members. Valentina Yura, who went by Tina, was born on August 25, 1957, in New York City to Gloria Fonseca and Felipe Pagan. Her mom would later marry Benarondo Nunez, who raised Tina as his own. She had two sisters, Elizabeth and Yolanda, and a brother, Philip. Tina grew up spending time in both New York and Puerto Rico. It was there that she met Digno Ramon Yoro. At the time, he was the U.S. Coast Guard Chief Petty Officer. 
On July 31, 1976, the two married in Rio Padres, Puerto Rico. It was a modest ceremony held at Tina's mom's house. In 1977, Shirley, the couple's first child, was born in Puerto Rico. And in 1982, their second daughter, Gloria, was born in New York City. Digno Jr., who went by DJ, their youngest child and only son, was born in 1989. Tina loved and adored her children. And in the Baltimore Sun, she was described as a super mom and a super grandma. Family was everything to her. She enjoyed cooking and baking, and for her daughter Gloria's first time hosting Thanksgiving, Tina was on FaceTime with her, helping her every step of the way, even though she wasn't there in person. She also enjoyed painting and sewing. She attended the Church of Iglesia El Sendero de la Cruz in Lansdowne, which was very important to Tina and her faith. She also volunteered there at the church, as well as at Oakland Elementary in Glen Burnie, Maryland, where she worked with students with special needs. Before that, Tina spent four years as a paraeducator at Marley Elementary. Anne Arundel, county public school spokesperson, Bob Moser, told the Baltimore Sun that Tina was incredibly nice, incredibly dedicated to students, and very dependable every day, saying that schools everywhere need people like her, who will help in any given situation and one of Tina's former students called her a very inspirational person. In February 2016, Tina's husband Digno passed away from cancer. Family, which was always important to Tina, was more important now more than ever. But as is the case with too many families we hear about, drugs crept into Tina's son DJ's life, which only compounded struggles he had with his mental health. At times, it would cause friction within the family, and in November 2021, it would all reach a boiling point. On the afternoon of November 28th of that year, police were called to Tina's townhome in Glen Burnie to respond to a residential alarm. They found her son, 32-year-old DJ, and his girlfriend there. DJ's girlfriend spoke to officers, but DJ didn't. She told officers that Tina was in her room upstairs, but wasn't responding to any phone calls or texts. According to the Capital Gazette, Corporal Joseph Berger thought that DJ was acting real funny. But he and his girlfriend both had Tina's address listed on their IDs, so the officers considered the alarm an accidental call and left without doing a welfare check on Tina. Less than an hour after officers left, DJ's girlfriend called 911 because of his behavior. But she didn't make this call until three minutes after Tina's daughter Shirley made a call to 911 when she found out about what was going on at her mom's house. Around 1.30 p.m. when police arrived at the townhouse, DJ's girlfriend was standing outside, and DJ was inside the home. She told police that DJ had threatened her with a knife, but she had escaped. And then she told officers that when she was inside the home, she saw a lot of blood, and that when she tried to go into the garage, DJ tried to stab her. She then admitted to police that the night before, DJ and Tina had argued, and after that, Tina stopped responding to phone calls. Officers had to break into the home where they found DJ holding a knife. He didn't respond to any of their orders, including at least 17 requests for him to put down his weapon, and he didn't drop the knife. DJ was shot with a beanbag round four times, and when that had no effect, he was tased. While being tased, DJ turned and started to walk toward the officers, knife in hand. Corporal Joseph Berger shot four rounds from his handgun at DJ, who then dropped the knife and fell to the floor. Officers and EMTs tended to DJ while other officers continued to clear the house, searching for 64-year-old Tina. They found the garage door locked and had to break it down to get inside. It was in the garage that Tina was found dead underneath a pile of towels and blankets, 
According to the Capital Gazette, Tina had numerous lacerations and other injuries, including stab wounds around her head and neck, and she had ultimately bled to death. DJ was pronounced dead at the scene. He had been hit with three or four rounds Corporal Berger fired. And during all the chaos at the scene, one of Tina's daughters was on the phone with DJ's girlfriend while these events played out, and that had to be terrifying. This tragic story was an event over a year in the making. In June 2020, Tina filed for a restraining order against DJ because he was scaring her, and he had been doing drugs which made his mental health decline. In her petition, Tina wrote, My son is very confrontational to the point that I have fear for my safety due to his unstable behavior. She continued to explain, He would get right in my face with an airy blank look on his face and gets to the point where nothing scares him, not even if I tell him I will call the cops. When Tina filed for the order of protection, she also filed an emergency petition for custody of DJ's eight-year-old daughter. The restraining order was temporarily granted, but the custody petition was denied. But DJ's daughter continued to live with Tina. Just a month after she filed, Tina asked the court to drop the restraining order against DJ because she didn't feel it was necessary any longer. Since her filing, DJ hadn't bothered her. When she asked the court to drop the restraining order, Tina told the judge, Intentionally, I know he would never hurt nobody. Tina's family is not only dealing with her loss, but the loss of DJ as well. Shirley and Glory have lost a mom and a brother, and DJ's daughter has lost her dad. Perhaps if DJ had gotten the help he needed for his mental health or drug use, both he and Tina might still be here today, and this whole horrific outcome could have been avoided. The Anne Arundel County State's Attorney's Office declined to press charges against the officers in DJ's death, and no charges against DJ's girlfriend have been filed. Tina's daughters feel that something's missing here. There are unanswered questions and things that don't make sense. They feel like they're not getting the whole story and being robbed of the truth. They'd like to hear more from DJ's girlfriend to help this all make sense. Not that anything will ever make sense in this case. How does a mom who loved her youngest son wind up dying at his hands? That's something Tina's daughter, Shirley and Gloria, are still trying to figure out. I sat down with both of them to discuss this tragic and heartbreaking case that has forever changed their family. That discussion is coming up in just a moment. Hi, Gloria and Shirley. I want to welcome both of you to the show and thank you for coming on to discuss your mom, Tina's case with us. Thanks for having us. Uh, it, it's good to talk to you. I wish it was under different circumstances. This is a, a, a very tough case. And in preparing for this interview, I read through a lot of tragic details about what happened to your mom and who ultimately was responsible. It, it's pretty shocking. That's no doubt left your family with a lot of upheaval. Before we get in exactly what happened uh, to your mom and how this happened, can you tell us a little bit about your mom herself? Maybe share some of your memories and, and what she was like. Um, so our mom was basically not just our mom. She was a mom to everybody, um, including uh, random strangers that she would meet and she would kind of welcome them into our family. And so for us, it was like, you know, we lost a mom, but also a lot of other people as well, because she was constantly the one that, you know, was there for everybody, cared, called, showed up. Um, she was like 
an amazing grandmother. She loved her grandkids. She was an amazing cook. Um, she always cooked for everybody. There was never a day that there was not food in the house. So, um, you know, everyone knew that she was just that mom that took care of everybody. And I know from the reading that I was doing, she's had uh, been married quite a, a while. Um, she lost her husband, your father, but rather than, you know, sink into a hole, it seemed like she stayed busy. I know she, you know, you mentioned she's got all the grandkids. She's been described as a super grandma. I know that she co-founded a, a, an after school group called the Marley girls club. So it seemed like she was busy and outgoing and, and, and kept going. No, I was going to say she volunteered a lot at schools. Um, she worked with a lot of um, special needs kids. Um, so she was definitely active in her community. Also in her church. She was, um, you know, she was constantly helping out there. So at the time this happened, what was going on in her life leading up to this tragic event? Was there any sign of anything going wrong in her life or in her everyday, you know, stuff that she did that that would you know warn something like this might happen so it happened like a year and two months almost two months ago she didn't have anything that would that we would think would lead up to something like this i mean she did have conflict with her son who was struggling with drugs and um some mental instability um and she's had had to unfortunately take restraining orders out for him. But again, you know, she was involved in so many people's lives that everybody was, you know, she was constantly like doing something for somebody or her kids or her grandkids. And so it would never like even come to like even our minds to think that anything like this, that she would be in this type of danger. So, you know, you mentioned a little bit that was going on with uh, her son, DJ. Uh, he was, you know, had some issues. And was he a, a, a dangerous person? Was he anyone that was involved in any kind of violence before? No, he wasn't. Uh, no, not, not violence. I mean, he's, he's been in trouble, but it was not for anything of, like, physical nature. Okay. Um, so let's go back to that, you know, the terrible day when this all happened. Um, this all started with the the police getting dispatched to your mom's house. Can you walk us through what brought them there and what unfolded when they got there? Yeah. So the alarm, uh, they tripped the alarm. Um, I believe Sierra tripped the alarm. Um, and I got a phone call from the alarm company. However, um, I had my ringer off on my phone, so I didn't see it till about 20 minutes or so later. And, um, and I, you know, it happened in the past when my mom first got the, um, alarm installed and it was just like a false alarm. So, um, I called her and I couldn't get through to her. Um, I tried her cell phone. I tried the house phone. And, uh, you know, she wasn't answering, which was, you know, very odd for my mom. She usually picks up the phone right away. So um, so I was getting a little nervous and antsy, so I started calling everyone. I tried calling my sister to see if she'd spoken with mom. I tried calling um, Rachel, uh, which is um, my uh, my niece that was living with my mother. 
And then um, her phone was disconnected, uh, not in service anymore. I tried calling her mother. I tried calling my grandfather, just like just trying to call anyone. And finally, I got a hold of Sierra through uh, Facebook Messenger. Um, I spoke with her and I told her, you know, I got a phone call from uh, the alarm company. And she's like, yeah, she's like, I'm, I'm trying to get a hold of your mom. Um, and I'm like, I'm trying to call her too. I can't get a hold of her. And, you know, I'm kind of worried now. Um, so I'm like, are you around? She's like, I'm here. And um, I didn't understand what she meant by I'm here. I thought, you know, I was like, are you locked outside? Are you knocking on the door? And she's like, no, I'm in the house. And I'm like, all right, well, um, like, where's mom? She said the cops had come by, but my mom didn't come down. And um, again, I'm thinking that's weird. She's like, uh, oh, I think she's upstairs, um, like, sleeping. And I'm like, not at this time, because it was already about one o'clock. It was just a little after one in the afternoon. And I'm like, there's no way that she's upstairs and she hasn't come down at all. Can you go check on her? And the whole time I'm on the phone with her, she doesn't make me nervous or make me seem like, you know, there was something wrong. So I asked her, you know, go upstairs, um, go check on her. So she walks upstairs and I can hear her knock on the door and say, Shirley's on the phone. My mom's not answering, she says. So I asked her, you know, open the door, check on mom. She opens the door. She's like, you know, that's weird. She's not here, but her phone, um, I guess her phone was on the bed, she says. So I asked her to go check the closet, go check the bathroom. And um, she's like, she's not here. So now I'm just kind of, again, I'm just getting even more, like, worried that something's going on. Um, But again, she's not making it seem like anything. So I asked her, is the car there? Go downstairs, go check in the garage. Because the worst case I'm thinking is, you know, maybe mom had a heart attack or something. Maybe she was in the in the garage and she passed out. Again, I'm not thinking anything to this extreme. So now she's walking down the stairs and she's like, oh, she's like, oh, now I'm kind of worried because her phone's, uh, her phone's here, first of all. Her pocketbook's there. Her shoes are there. And she's like, and the car's outside. So I saw her go open the garage door and go check and see if she's okay. I see, you know, she's in there. Something happens. Um, and that's when I hear her say, I guess she's speaking to my brother and she says something along the lines of, um, you're going to stab me. He took a knife out or something. So at this point, um, I didn't ask her anything else. I was like, I'm hanging up and calling the police, which is what I said. I ended up calling 911 and they connect me to, um, the one here in uh, Connecticut. Um, I, I asked, explained the situation, said, uh, I'm trying to get a hold of my mom. My brother's, you know, threatening his girlfriend. Um, they give me the number to the uh, Maryland um, department, but they, I guess they connect me with like the highway. So I ended up hanging up and Googling uh, Glen Burnie, Maryland Police Department, and I got a hold of um, one of the dispatchers there. It was a lady. She answered um, and I explained the situation. Um, she took my information down. She said she was going to get a hold of someone to see if they can um, go back to the house. So they, someone calls me back, and it happens to be the same officer that had gone to the first uh, for the alarm call. So he calls and, you know, he explains, I just was over there. I'm telling him, you know, I'm calling the house. I'm calling the cell phone. Um, no one's answering. My brother and his girlfriend are there. I did not know that they were sleeping or had spent the night there. Um, my mom's, uh, you know, no one can find her. And my brother's threatening his girlfriend. Um, they, he has mental health problems. And um, so let me know as soon as, you know, he gets there. Let me know what's going on. So that was the last call. Um, I didn't get a call back after that. And that's when kind of when everything just kind of unfolded. Um, so that's pretty much what happened. And then I didn't find out anything else 
until after the fact when Sierra called me. And again, she never mentioned to me that there was any indication of a struggle in the house, any blood or or anything at all that would, you know, kind of make her think that something like this happened um, until she finally got out of the house because I heard she called the police um, after I had called the police and um, talked to her the first time. And that's when she said that she saw blood, um, which, again, I didn't understand, and she just didn't explain it, and I was just kind of freaking out because I did not understand how you were in the house the whole time, and all of a sudden, after I hung up with you is when you see blood. Especially because she was walking you through what was going on and what she was finding and stuff like that, but didn't mention any blood. No, she didn't mention it to the officers either. Um, no, this happened the night the night before. Yeah. Um, so, and, and just to backtrack a little bit, so the the police officer goes out there the first time because of the alarm, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, standard procedure when an alarm goes off, the police go out there and check on it, make sure it's not like a false alarm or whatever. He finds your brother and his girlfriend there, but not your mom, but they just say, hey, we live here, everything's cool, and that's why the police officer left, is that correct? No. no. So, so they said that they don't live there, they used to live there, and this was like years ago, and they never changed their license number or whatnot, but See, the whole time we didn't know this until much, much later, but Sierra was the one who communicated with the officers the entire time. Um, And they're the ones who asked her to go upstairs and get my mom. And supposedly she went up the stairs and then she came back shortly after and said, my mom's not taking any phone calls or text messages. And they never went in. They never saw her. They never spoke to her. um, And they... And also on the report, it shows that they saw him um, with the knife or with the weapon um, at the first response call, you know, but still left and even said in the report that he was acting funny, you know. Um, So it was kind of one of those things where we've been asking for this footage since the very beginning and they refused to let us have it, um, which would show like we have the report that kind of details a little bit of what went on um but under their protocol like they were supposed to go in and make sure she was okay and they did not they just kind of left and not that that would have saved your mom because as we find out the night before but it would have um they would have found out what happened quicker uh and, and it just sounds weird that when you go to a you know police arrive on the scene and someone's holding a knife you know yeah I, I picture yeah. the police saying, drop the knife and put that down or, um, but none of that happened. The, the, he just sort yeah. of left and, and left your brother there with the knife. Yep. Exactly. Hmm. And so he leaves, then, uh, you're on the phone, um, with his girlfriend, with DJ's girlfriend and mm-hmm. you're in another state. So you're sort of helpless. You can't do anything there. Yeah. Um, it's gotta be a, a tough feeling, not being able to understand what's it, really going on. It is because it wasn't just that. It's like my mom was like a creature hat. Like we like knew how her day would go. Like and he like I knew from here that something wasn't right, and that's why I made the phone call because it was just it was just very odd. Um, and the last time I had heard from my mom was that night before on Saturday at around ten. It was probably like ten oh six or something like that. That she had sent me a text. 
Um, I responded to her about an hour later um, by phone. I actually texted her uh, not too long after, and then I called her, but she didn't answer. So I'm thinking, okay, maybe she went to bed. Um, and then Sierra supposedly got home that night at like 12:30 in the morning. Um, so again, we're—I don't understand how she was saying um, that she didn't see anything or anything. You know. Like she just, she came in the house, like nothing. Meantime, like in the report, like my sister was stating in the report, it says that my brother, um, her and um, my mother and my brother got into, um, a, I guess like a physical alteration. Um, when she came home, she noticed that my brother was scratched up bleeding and, um, she didn't think to say that to me. Um, she also didn't let the police know that, um, she just ended up going to bed without yeah, she didn't check on my mom. You know, my mom's older. She had a bad hand. Um, so, you know, you came in the house, you saw him like this, and you didn't think to go and check up on mom to see if she's okay. And not just that, but, like, so we found out, I want to say two days after we got down there when everything happened from um, a neighbor that, um, that Sierra had taken photos of the blood in the house. And, um, and I was just kind of shocked and taken aback because I never heard anything about that. I, you know, Sierra again, never mentioned anything. Um, she's stating that she saw the blood after when she was running out of the house because my brother was chasing her with a knife. So, um, I just thought it was interesting how if someone's being chased with a knife, how did they have time to take photos? And the reason the neighbor happened to see the photos was because Sierra texted those photos to, um, I believe it was her manager, that she worked with and um, she just happened to show it to my mom's neighbor. So now we told the detectives regarding this um, and we've been trying to find out since then when the photo was taken, how many photos were taken, what time they were sent to the manager. And we didn't find out till just recently in November when we had um, a conference call with them that they had that information. And we were told that she took these photos at 1230 in the morning, which is the time that she got home. So she's known this whole time that something happened. There was blood everywhere. She's she's just lying about everything. So, so like a lot of time went by from when she first took these pictures to when all this stuff happened. So this was 1230 in the morning uh, on Sunday morning. Um, and then she stated that she saw the blood at what time was it glow? Like when, when the cops. Uh, went when back the cops went back. It was I don't have it all written down. The cops arrived again at 1:35, but they had reported initially at 12:47. So yeah, and this is like over 12 plus hours later. And we were told that there were several pictures taken from different angles. Oh, so so she knew about this stuff, and and that something had happened but didn't acted like nothing happened. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. And there was and, also a minor child there and they didn't even know that um, in the first response call. And then the second response call, there was a minor and there was like, nobody called for that minor, no social worker, nothing. They just let her go home with Sierra's grandparents or somebody like that. Hmm. That's, that's a lot of uh, details that are important. I, I want to jump forward a little bit to where, you know, so the the second part of this 
whole tragedy happens when your brother winds up having this altercation with police and he okay. shot what what happened what led to that i know it stems from him chasing his girlfriend with a knife but what happened when the police got back there um so from the report our understanding and the you know obviously the video that was um published for the public um apparently Sierra called or supposedly was chased out and she called three minutes after my sister had called 911 and so the police arrived on scene it says that it was about I have to look at the report, but it was about like 30 minutes, maybe, um, that they were just kind of coming up with a plan or something like that. They tried knocking multiple times for him to get out. Then they ended up um, using something to, to, you know, open the door. And he was there. And then they were telling him to surrender and he wasn't complying. So they shot him with bean bags. I think they did that um, two times, if I'm not mistaken. And then when they entered into the house um, after he tried shutting the door, um, then it was laser, uh, um, the tasers. And yeah, and and apparently that didn't do anything either. And then the officer said something like, do it again, do it again, or something like that. And I guess there's, I, I don't know, some confusion of whether it was do the taser again, but the other guy who was the one who responded to the first alarm was the one who shot him. And he died on scene. Oh, so he's he's there with a knife. He's already uh, tried to attack his girlfriend, and now the police are feel they're threatened, so they they shoot him. He does at the scene, uh, and then I guess at that point is when they look around the house. Is that how they ultimately found your mom? Yeah, they. Um, um, I guess they already knew to go to the garage because from when they came in, that was where they headed to. Um, so they used some another equipment thing to to pry open the door, and that's you know where they found her in the garage. Mm. So how did you both learn? You know, after this initial call, and and you're like, okay, what's going on here? And then how and when did you both find out that this has gone really downhill, and now your brother's been shot, and your your mom's been found dead. Well, I was on the phone with um, Sierra um, while she was outside and she was just kind of telling me what was going on. And then um, we had also a friend that was there that also called to confirm like everything that happened. Um, so I just, again, I, I knew that the cops were there. I, I knew that they were, um, you know, they were, you know, hitting DJ with the, the tasers and whatnot. And then I, I believe I was pretty much on the phone with her. Um, when, uh, I guess when he got shot and cause she was yelling that they, that they shot him. Um, but I, I guess like the, the police officer was yelling at her to get off the phone. So I got off the phone with her and then I just heard from one of my mom's friends to let me know that they were, um, that they were had both passed. So it's gotta be a, a, a terrible situation to, to listen to unfold and, <laughs> and not be able to do anything about it. Well, you feel helpless, um, and it's just, you know, it's traumatizing as, as it is, and, you know, to be, to be here, you just feel absolutely helpless, um, and you just want to be there at that moment. Um, I, I wanted to be with my mom. Um, hmm. so, so the police determined, ultimately, that DJ had 
this is their their finding anyhow that tj had stabbed your mom to death the night before hidden her body in the garage and what do you know what his plan was was he trying to what was he going to do did he have a plan i don't know i believe we don't have any proof but i believe they did because i don't think they were expecting my sister to be notified for the alarm Mm -hmm. because from that time that the police responded there was still um a little bit of time even after that before my sister got a hold of sierra and there was still no like calls to the police or even when the police responded she could easily run down run out if she was scared but she was the one who was communicating with the police officers the whole time and apparently they had my mother's phone because on her um phone uh records on text messages um, it shows like Sierra's asking, are you okay? Are you okay? Or something like the next day. But then it shows that it was red. You know what I mean? At like right after. And she was already mm-hmm. passed. So one of them had the phone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also when we got there, um, there, there was cleaning supplies. There I mean, there was. Yeah. yeah. Well, so do you think uh, it, it's possible and again, I, I want to point out that Sierra hasn't been charged with a crime to this point, but uh, do you think it's possible that there was going to be an attempted cleanup and uh, getting rid of evidence and, and trying to hide what happened? Absolutely. I feel like that's what we're trying to do. And I even told her that I, I literally spoke with Sierra and I told her that's what I felt after finding out what time the photos and everything were taken. I was like, I feel like, you know, when you got there, you tried to help my brother clean up because, um, again, if, if it was because she tried to say, um, when I confronted her about the fact that she took photos, she tried to say that, oh, like she thought it was my brother's blood. But again, it's like, oh, wait, let's say that was his blood. Um, you didn't think to check up on mom. And also, do you honestly believe that my mom would have um, left blood all over the living room, like carpeting and gone to bed with like not even trying to clean it up or anything, knowing that there's a minor that lives in the house and she wouldn't want her to see all that. Um, so it was just, I just told her, I was like, you know, like, I feel like, like you'd have to be really stupid to to just come into the house and think oh okay it's not a big deal and let me just go to bed like i mean any other normal person would have um you know i would have called the police i'm sorry i would have i would have called someone i was like i don't care if it was my brother or not if i came home and and, and came across something like that i would have called the cops so her story just doesn't make a lot of sense it doesn't none of it makes sense it really doesn't and hmm. she's, she's been telling people one thing and then another person will hear something else and, and it's never the same story. So it's like, it's a lot of inconsistency in what she says. Hmm. And so what do the, the police think, or do you have a theory on what caused uh, your brother to snap and do this and, and what led to that? Um, they have not Stated in the report, they have also not shared that information with us. Sierra had told, I guess, reporters and maybe the police, because again, we don't have that um, information or the footage, that he had uh, supposedly mental illness, schizophrenia, or something. But we don't have any medical documentation that says he was diagnosed with any of that. So it's kind of, you know. 
he was definitely mentally unstable, but he definitely did a lot of drugs as well. And so that can also cause like some mental instability. But um, we, I don't know. Um, me personally, I believe it was about money because he was obsessed with an inheritance that was never a thing from my dad. And he just, since my dad passed, he just had it in his head that he was supposed to receive some sort of inheritance. Meanwhile, none of us received anything. It was left to my mother. Um, and he just kind of like kept targeting and bullying my mother about this money. It could have been any number of different things, his, his drug use, his mental illness, um, the money, any number of things could have set him off and caused an argument or something that went out of control. It's possible. Personally, I, I still believe it was all about money. Okay. So you think this was just purely greed motivated? So uh, officially, the police sound, it sounds like, at least publicly, they've said, okay, he killed your mom, he's dead, we can't send him to jail, your mom's dead, case closed. Is that basically the impression they've given you? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, they haven't. I've found, because I've been keeping on with them this entire time, like since this happened, I've been on them, like white on rice. And I've brought to their attention so many different, like, raised flags, questions, concerns. I've also, you know, it, it's been a lot. And I've been on them for, like, updates. And, you know, they, they just kept saying it's an active investigation. You know, um, we can't provide any information. And then after we get the report from the police-involved shooting that they did an investigation, then, like, it was maybe two, one, two, maybe two, a little over two months, um, then we find out that they're not charging her and they wouldn't give us their report. Um, we were able to obtain that from a reporter that we spoke with. And if you read that report, it's just kind of like they did nothing, nothing. Like they, first of all, I've had to tell them about um, uh, neighbors that were not questioned that one lived right across from my mother, one lived right behind, that they were questioned two months after. They left one of the bullets in the house that we found three months later. Um, and we were allowed to go into the home the very next day, like without cleanup or anything like that. And so it, to me, it was a little unsettling because I thought we, weren't, we wouldn't be able to go into the house for a while, you know, because it's a crime scene. But somehow we were allowed to go in the next day. And there was just so many things that didn't make sense that it was like, how did, like, what evidence did you take? What did you do? So they give us the sheet of supposedly what they took. And it was very minimal. It was most of their stuff, like their, their beanbags, you know, the bullets they retrieved, minus one. And um, uh, the DNA swabs of my mom and DJ. And then um, I guess uh, certain parts of their clothing or something like that. Yeah. And I had asked them about the cleaning supplies that were right there. And I told them about the car to bring in because it smelled like smoke. And my mother doesn't smoke and she wouldn't allow anyone to smoke. Um, there was just like a lot of things. There's a lot of laptops and other phones that they didn't take. Um, we told them about the camera. My mom had um, a house camera and apparently they weren't able to get anything out of it. Um, I, I don't know that 
I don't know if it was supposed to be an SD chip, whatever, but they weren't able to to get anything from there. You know, I've I've told them a lot about Sierra's like stories, like, you know, she's telling one thing to this person, she's telling another thing to that person. She was not properly investigated at all. They just took her word and that was the end of it. We don't know if she supposedly was chased out with a knife and she said that he got a, a nip of her wrist where her tat- one of her tattoos are. And um, I had asked, was there any medical attention for her or the daughter or, you know, like anything? My sister and I were the ones who brought her in on that Tuesday to be seen for a social worker because they didn't even, like, set that up. You know, and initially they set up a safety plan for her to come with me. And then like we tried to explain this to Sierra and then the next the next day it was flipped and then she's you know, the safety plan was going back to her or something like that. I don't know. It was a very confusing matter. We went to uh emergency custody for her uh on the third of December, which I believe was a Friday. Um and it was that was another debacle. Like she was late. They allowed her to come in. She didn't have the paperwork. They allowed her to leave with the paper, you know, to go print out the paperwork to bring back. She didn't read any of the documents that I, I submitted regarding like a lot of people who were aware of the situation and, you know, kind of willing to testify and everything like that. She lied under oath and it was just kind of like you know, a closed case. Like nobody seemed to be concerned of the child that was in the house when it actually happened, you know? So there's been like no follow-up on her. Um, I, I, it just, like, it goes on and on. Like, and then the interviews, according to Anne Arundel Police Department, um, one, they're missing one of the people that they said they interviewed on their report. And it also shows that they were interviewed on 1128. There's no further interviews since that. There's nothing else. Like everything stems from 1128 and that's it. There was no date on their report. It's a, it's a poor excuse of a summary of like, I think it was like eight or nine pages. Meanwhile, the police involved shooting had 24 pages of detailed information. And I don't think that they knew that I had received that document, you know, because even when we were speaking with the attorney general, um, that was the former attorney general who was, excuse my language, a complete asshole to us. Um, he, he was the one who had misinformation, like when she was questioned and when um, 911 was called. Meanwhile, I had all this in the, the initial report. And so I kept correcting them. And apparently he didn't like that. So um, he was just giving us the brush off and we're being told that it's not a crime to lie to police officers and it's not, and she was under no obligation to, you know, tell about a crime that happened. And there's no law for that for Maryland, which I find absolutely like not true, but um, they were not willing to listen to everything. This was for them a closed shut case. Like, I feel like this was the protection of the police officer involved shooting um, because if they have to bring Sierra into the, the fold, they would have to have brought the first initial police officer. And they were basically trying to avoid that initial alarm response as far as like letting the public know, putting it in the report. Like they went through everything from like the second response call 
And then at the very, very bottom, it says um, we're looking to see if Sierra could be charged for whatever, lying to officers for the initial response alarm. So that was all the way at the very bottom. Then there was DNA taken that apparently had three profiles that were identified for my mother and identified for DJ. And then the third one, what did they say? It was inconclusive. But if you're not taking DNA from anyone else, um, how, you know, how are you going to know? Because they didn't do it for Sierra or Rachel. You know, it was just, there were so many things that went wrong in that case. Like they were not investigating at all. There's a lot of loose ends and a lot of things that still need to be answered. It sounds like. Yes. Mm-hmm. How forthcoming are they now? Are they were are they telling you that hey, we'll get you the stuff you're asking for? We'll look into this more. Or is there any kind of movement as far as them being willing yeah. to help you get more answers? Nope, nope. They're giving me the brush off. I've I've, I've contacted um, them multiple times. I've contacted the Office of Attorney General's office. I've contacted the governor. I've contacted the senators. Are the representative and the senator actually, and um, what I found was, which was, you know, it, it's sad, but it makes sense. The former attorney general is no longer there, um, so there's someone new, and so if he was looking to get leave anyway, um, that's exactly how he was treating us. Like it, you know, he's just not dealing with it, and so that made sense. Then the governor Hogan, who I sent this information to their office, never received a response. And now there's a new governor, you know, so I sent them both the information. I've also filed um, a complaint against the Anne Arundel Police Department. But in Maryland, like no one is reaching out to me. I'm getting reached out from everyone outside of Maryland, but the people that should be like, you know, being forthcoming with this information. When I tried to get all the reports and, and, and honestly, that, that main first footage that I really, really want, and they know that, um, now they were trying to charge us, um, it was close to $9,000 um, for this information, um, which wouldn't be everything because um, they were saying they can't uh, include autopsy report, they can't include medical information, and part of the information would be redacted because... Um, some of it would be privilege information. And it's basically like a lot of pushback to just get our like questions answered. You know, when we're asking them, it comes back as like an annoyance, you know, and they don't want to answer anything. I asked them a numerous times about police protocol for wellness checks and alarm, you know, calls and what is the, the you know, clearing of a scene and everything. And I kept getting the runarounds, runarounds, runarounds for basically a year. And then they finally submitted it to me. And after I read it, it wasn't followed. So it's, it's, it's been a lot because even with the initial footage for the first responding officers, they were initially going to give us that because we asked them for it. And then it's turned into, oh, um, we'll see. And then from we'll see is like, oh, we can't because, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the investigation, blah, 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 blah. And it wasn't until August when I received the report um, that is when I found out that the police officer who shot DJ was also one of the police officers that initially responded to the home alarm, which made sense why they didn't want to give us that footage. Hmm. 
So it sounds like a, a real uphill battle for you to get everything that you want that's going to help you hopefully get answers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is such a, a just a terrible, tragic case. If if your mom had been sick or she was in a car accident or something, that would be bad enough. But to have her gone after, under these terrible circumstances, I can't imagine how this is uh, on your family. Yeah, it was, it's really hard. The kids, I mean, like I said, our, um, all our kids are very close to, um, or we're very close to our mother. My mom was very active in um, all their lives. So, you know, they're, they're older too, you know, so it's, they took it really hard. Yeah. And do they understand, are they the ages where they're asking questions or, you know, dealing with that stuff? My oldest, um, he's 20 now, um, he was 18. He's the one that drove me down there. He was with me. He went into the house and saw everything. Like, it's just, it was very hard on him. He was a, he's the first grandchild, and he just, it was, and he, he was close to my mom and my brother, so it was just very hard for him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and if any of the kids, I guess, are younger, then they're going to one day you know, maybe ask questions and not, you know, f- not fully understand how this happened. Mm-hmm. So just as we wrap up here, um, when you people read about your mom or they listen to this episode or they see her picture on the news, whatever it may be, when they think of your mom, what do you want her legacy to be? What do you want them to think of when they when they think of her? Well, she was she was an angel on earth. I mean, she really was. I would joke with her all the time in kind of like a, you know, ha-ha funny annoyance way because it didn't matter what it was. It could be the smallest, like, insignificant thing that you could think of. And she would either be able to know how to do it or have it. And there was just nothing she couldn't do. And she had, and it's something I said, and, you know, um, during her funeral, it's she could make, 72 hours in a 24-hour day and it just to us you know she was like a super mom like she did it all and she did it not for any recognition not for you know for anyone to give her anything she did that because that was who she was like she loved to love on people you know and mm-hmm. she showed it mm. that's a, a big part missing from your lives now well, again, I can't thank you both enough for coming on and sharing this story and, and what happened. Very tragic. And I hope somehow, although it seems like you're fighting an uphill battle, I hope you uh, both have some kind of success figuring out, you know, those things they won't release to you and, and getting a hold of that stuff to give you more answers. Thank you. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.